Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm here today with Sue Washer, who is president and CEO of AGTC, which is one of the leading companies in the area of genetic therapy of ocular disease. Sue, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Well, I'm very pleased to be here, and I look forward to our conversation today. So you've been in this space for a while. What is your vision for the role of gene therapy in the management of retinal disease, broadly speaking? Well, I think bro broadly speaking, when you think of the genetic causes of vision loss, they all happen toward in the back of the eye, as you say, in the retina. And I think before there was gene therapy available, trying to think about how you get product all the way back to the retina and to be able to help patients that have loss of photoreceptors or unhealthy photoreceptors or even RPE cells has been quite challenging. So I think the vision of gene therapy is we can surgically deliver um, in now a very well controlled way that we can talk about, we can surgically deliver a gene therapy product directly to the cells that are affected by these very debilitating genetic defects and really be able to help millions of patients throughout the world that have vision loss due to genetic defects. So that's my vision is that we show the proof of concept in these initial products that we've brought forward in the clinic and we're able to expand that to many different indications. How has the field uh, changed over the last three or four years? Well, I think the first thing that's changed is we had a first therapy approved. Uh, so Spark, now Roche, has got their product for RPE65 approved, which is Luxterna. And that product has been shown to be very safe. It is it's shown to be very durable. They just released four-year data. So four years past a single dose of the gene therapy product. And the patients are still having a very good clinical benefit uh, from that product. And so I think that's really energized all of us in the ophthalmology space to see that path forward and to continue developing products for other genetic indications. Can you discuss the technology underlying your gene therapy? Yeah, so I think that that's really very important because one of the things that we think we do just a bit differently than others is that we really pay attention to that underlying science, the underlying technology. And so every component of the gene therapy product we screen and design very carefully. This is not an off-the-shelf plug-and-play technology, and we believe the most success in gene therapy is had when you embrace that complexity. We screen every portion of our product in non-human primates because especially in ophthalmology, we all know that the eyes of humans and non-human primates are very different than the eyes of mice. Uh, the size, the shape, the specialization of the cells, you know, primates are the only ones that have three different types of cones, the only ones that have a fully formed fovea, the only ones that have an inner limiting membrane. So taking all of those differences that primates have from other eyes, we've really got to screen the components to make sure in a primate eye, we can get product to the right cells. And so this is something that we think is critically important. And that includes not just the capsid, the promoter and the gene, but also the actual physical delivery method can really differ when you're talking about lower mammals or primates. And so 
that's what we think is quite important that everybody look at each indication very specifically and go back to the beginning and design each of the components of the gene therapy to the best ability. We've gone so far as to use naturally occurring dog models um, out of the University of Pennsylvania to look at, to screen uh, products, both for our X-linked RP product and our chromatopsia product. And we think it's all of this basic science work that we do ahead of time that has allowed us to get the very robust data in the human clinical trials. Can you talk a little bit about your viral vector delivery system? Yeah, so our viral vector is the adeno-associated virus, and, and this is a very common vector to use in gene therapy across indications. We are really agnostic to which vector we're using, which serotype we're using. As I mentioned earlier, we screen in non-human primates to find the vector that transduces the cells and allows expression of the protein in the best possible way. And whether it's a uh, serotype that we've engineered internally or whether we license it from someone else, uh, we're really agnostic to that because what we wanna do is put the right product together uh, for each patient population. Can you discuss your X-Link retinitis pigmentosa project? So we've just recently gotten very exciting data for our XLRP program. We'd previously reported all of the data through 12 months uh, for our phase one, two trial, which was a simple dose escalation trial where we saw good safety and encouraging signs of biological activity. And then most recently, we reported three-month data from the first of two late-stage trials, the first one being called Skyline. And that data fully supported the data from our phase one, two, in that we saw a very clean safety profile. We did not see any issues uh, with inflammation or any serious adverse events related to the study agent. And we were able to improve upon the response rate and the quality of the efficacy response from the phase one to two skyline. Uh, we blinded the skyline data between a low dose and a high dose. And what we saw as a result was that in one of the two dose groups, and as I said, we're blinded to which is high or low, we got a 62% response rate in one dose and we only had a 25% response rate in the other dose. And this is a very important concept that the FDA really wanted to see. They wanted to see in a blinded fashion that you saw distinct differentiation between the two doses. And this was one of their ways to assure that we weren't seeing bias in the results. So we're just, we're very pleased at this robust response rate and the fact that it matched so closely the phase one, two data because everybody feels better when they can repeat an experiment and have the same clinical results. So moving forward into the VISTA trial, if our second, the second of our later stage trials, we feel if that VISTA data is similar to the Skyline data, which matches the phase one, two data, we would be prepared uh, to file a BLA. So this is gene replacement therapy. What, what are, what's your target? So XLRP, X-linked retinitis pigmentosa, is largely caused by mutations in one gene, the RPGR gene. And this gene uh, is a transport protein between the inner and outer segments of photoreceptors. And it affects both rods and cones. So our target is to get a correct copy of the RPGR gene 
into both rods and cones in the eyes of these patients? So um, many of these patients have had X-linked RP for many years. Um, what about the age of the patient? Did that affect response? We did not see that. Uh, we saw patients as old as, I think the oldest patient in uh, this particular trial was 53 years old. Uh, and we, in, in both the trials, the phase one, two, and the skyline, taking the, all of those patients, the oldest was about 50. Uh, and the youngest was, as, I think the youngest patient was around um, eight years old. So we saw a good effect and there was no correlation between age. One thing to remember about this indication is it does start in the periphery and go in towards the center. Many patients do retain some good foveal vision for many, many decades. We specifically targeted the macula for treatment. So our treatment, our delivery of our about 300 microliters of product goes directly to the macula. It covers the whole macular area. And this is the area of the eye that, as I said, many patients do retain function later uh, in life. And so that's why we think we saw this very good effect, same effect, and irregardless of age. What was the functional endpoint that you monitored? Visual sensitivity. So in uh, XLRP patients, as I said, what they're losing is visual fields. Their, their vision is constricting over time to just a pinpoint of vision in the center. So what matters to them is widening or maintaining as large a field of vision as possible. So visual sensitivity, which can map out how the retina works over a very large area is the endpoint. Many people ask, well, why not use visual acuity? We all understand visual acuity. The products have been improved with visual acuity. The issue there is, as I said, many of these patients retain good foveal vision, and that's all visual acuity measures. It's just the vision in the fovea. So some of these patients can only see a pinprick of vision at the center. They can only read one letter at a time in a book but that vision there in the fovea, they could have visual acuity as good as 2040. Uh, and so you really can't use visual acuity as an endpoint with these patients because it's hard for them to approve uh, in visual acuity in many cases. How do you measure visual sensitivity? So visual sensitivity is typically measured a couple of different ways. Uh, there's something called microperimetry, which is what we're using, and I'll get to that in a moment. There's also something called static full field perimetry. Uh, the difference is, is that static full field perimetry looks at a much larger area uh, of the retina, and it also has bigger targets that are somewhat easier to see for some patients, uh, but it doesn't have a density or accuracy or precision like the microperimetry do, does. So we use microperimetry because it covers the whole macular area, but has many, many points close together. So we're getting a very fine, accurate, robust idea of what visual function is in that macular area, which is where our product is. And what happens is the patient is positioned in front of the instrument. The instrument registers on the vasculature and the optic nerve. So we know every time they're being tested, that it's registering and measuring sensitivity at exactly the same place from test to test to test. And then little flashes of light flash at the patient and the patient says they can either see it or they don't see it. 
and the machine varies the brightness of that light flash and goes all across the macula. And so that's how we measure visual sensitivity. You, you discuss how you place the uh, dose in the macular region, but doesn't the vector transfect cells all over the retina? Not in a subretinal injection. So in a subretinal injection, you're creating that virtual space in between the photoreceptors and the RPE <clears> cells. <throat> And really it is contained to wherever that, that subretinal bleb is created. If you were thinking about doing an intravitreal injection, then what happens is the vector can go to many, many areas in, in the vitreous and in the front of the eye and maybe the sides of the eye. Unfortunately, from an intravitreal injection, not much vector gets through that inner limiting membrane all the way back to the retina. And where we want to get back to the retina, back to the back of the eye where those photoreceptors are. And that's why we use a subretinal injection. So what are the next steps? So the next steps are we have three additional sets of data coming out over the next year. Uh, the first of those is two-year data on our phase one, two, which we'll, we hope will show continued safety and durability of the positive clinical benefit. The next will be one-year data, 12-month data from the Skyline trial that I just talked about. And then the third set of data will be the interim data from our VISTA trial, which is our larger statistically controlled uh, late-stage trial. Why did you select X-linked retinitis pigmentosa? So we selected it for a number of reasons. First, there is this naturally occurring dog model of XLRP, which meant that we would be able to test and design our product in a large animal, a larger eye, um, an eye that is a little bit more like a primate eye than a mouse is, and we would be able to study the effects of our product very carefully. So that was one reason. Another reason was that it's a fairly substantial patient population, about 20,000 patients in the US and EU, uh, such that we could use our efforts to be able to address a wider population of patients. Um, and third, there was compelling data in academics that you could have a positive effect on XLRP. So it was really those three things together. What about other inherited retinal degenerations? Yeah, so the second product we have in development is for a treatment for achromatopsia. Achromatopsia is another IRD. Um, it's very clinically very different. It only affects the cones, and it is not a degenerative disease like XLRP is. It's fairly stable, uh, but for the achromatopsia B3, which is the specific form of achromatopsia we're studying, it is another robust patient population in that there are about 14,000 patients in the US and EU. And once again, there's a naturally occurring dog model that we were able to work with. So again, we felt like we had all the tools to be able to carefully design a product for achromatopsia and bring it forward into the clinic. And again, the clinical data we have so far for achromatopsia shows that the product is is very well tolerated, and we have very encouraging signs of biological activity. We recently completed an end of phase two meeting with the FDA and are adjusting our protocol based on a very positive interaction with them, and we'll be soon able to move that product into late stage development as well. We believe that there's a wide range of IRDs that could be addressable with gene therapy, and we continue to explore other products that we could begin work on. 
What's the visual disability in achromatopsia? So achromatopsia, these patients are actually born legally blind with severe light discomfort. And they also only see in black and white and shades of gray. And, and it, it, if you know your visual cycle, you will know that's because their cones aren't working because it's your cones that provide you color vision. It's your cones that provide you uh, vision in, in, in daylight situations or office lighting situations. Um, and it's your cones that provide you that very fine visual acuity. Rods aren't really good at visual acuity. You know, with only rods, you usually have about 2200 vision. Uh, so these patients have a severe effect on their, on their visual function. They're usually diagnosed or, or their parents usually notice what's happening with their kids as early as three months old. Because their vision is so poor, they have nystagmus and their eye is wandering all over trying to find a place to focus on, but they can't focus because they don't have good vision. And then whenever the parents come in and turn on the lights to take them to wake them up in the morning, the patient, the, the kids get very fussy and, and cry because that light is so uncomfortable to them because uh, of the lack of cone function. What's your target? So the target here is that we're replacing the gene. It's gene augmentation. So we're replacing the gene that's uh, mutated. And in the chromatopsia B3 patients, what's uh, going on here is that they have a mutation in a gene that helps form a channel in the membrane of cones to allow photons in and trigger the phototransduction cascade. So without that uh, channel in, in the cone membrane, the phototransduction cascade does not get completed. And that's why the cones aren't working. So what stage are you at in this program? So as I said, we just finished our end of phase two meeting with the FDA, uh, a very positive meeting. We're making some adjustments based on that discussion to our phase two, three clinical protocol. And once we get that uh, amended, uh, we'll be able to make some guidance on when we'll move into late stage development. So AGTC is looking at age-related macular degeneration. Can you tell us a little bit about your program? Yeah, in that program, we're making our first foray, obviously, into a much larger patient population. What we're focusing on in uh, dry AMD is patients who have defects or, or, or polymorphisms in the CFH gene, the complement factor H because it's been shown that patients that have either one allele or two alleles of polymorphisms in that gene have uh, orders of magnitude more likely to develop dry AMD. So what we're going to do in this patient population is that we've designed a construct that can deliver and express a fully functional CFH gene. We're going to target patients in our phase one, two trial that have these polymorphisms uh, and we're going to be delivering to the back of the eye, to the RPE layer, and to the photoreceptor layer uh, by subretinal injection, just like in our other programs, this fully functional CFH gene to be able to downregulate C3 uh, to C3B. So uh, what percent of a ARMD patients have this gene defect? Yeah, it's a fairly large uh, patient population. It, it, it's, you know, there's millions and millions of patients in the world with dry AMD. Um, and as much as five, as many as 5% of them have these polymorphisms. So this is still a very large market in the millions. 
uh, that would potentially benefit. It's also possible that downregulation uh, uh, interference in the alternative pathway could be generally beneficial to dry MD patients. And that's something that we will also explore in this program. So you're gonna look at geographic atrophy, is that right? Correct. Correct. And this is, uh, you know, now been uh, fairly well established. And, and I think we're all sitting on the edge of our seats to see what approvals will come for the two programs that are, are, are in front of the FDA. Uh, and both of those companies with those programs have been looking at geographic atrophy. And so that's what we plan to look at. I will say that in our phase one, two, what we're going to be most looking at uh, as a proof of concept is biomarkers, because we all know that it takes a long period of time to really look at the effect of your product on geographic atrophy. Uh, so we'll be looking at the biomarkers that we can study uh, through aqueous and vitreous taps. So Sue, thanks so much for this uh, interview. Fantastic stuff and very exciting and uh, very clearly presented. So our audience will enjoy this. Well, thank you for having me, Carmen.